you know. All right, uh, but thanks for getting the clock going and all that kind of stuff so I know how late I am. All right. How, okay, look, terrible things going on in the world, the broken world, wrong things. How many of you would like to be the kind of people who always do the right thing? And when I say that, I want to make it clear. If we're looking at the spectrum of things that you can do, there's on one end of the spectrum is the things that God wants you to do. These are the right things. And they're right, and this is really key. They're right for reasons that usually at the time you're making the decision, you have no idea about. The Holy Spirit can see over the horizon, knows what's coming, and they fit with what's coming in a way that you could never have known at the time. On the other end of the spectrum is the kind of evil that we've been praying for and talking about, and we'll touch on a little bit today. But somewhere in the middle here is the place that we actually live, all of us, right? And we want to be the kind of people who do right all the time and just do it naturally. But the fact of the matter is, is there are these desires that we have, and they're not necessarily bad desires. They're not evil things. They're not terrible things. They're just things that we want. And when we're faced in these moments, we get little decisions like this all the time. But there's some big ones that we're going to talk about today that really sort of reveal the character, reveal where you really are and so on. And, and at these moments, isn't it funny how whenever you're faced with one of these big decisions, you know, where it really is going to put you on one track or another and you're aware of that, you have a consciousness of it, that the thing that you want to do, just sort of as you think about it, the more time you spend on it, the bigger it gets the more attractive it gets, the more reasonable it seems, the more bright it shines so as to take your attention from the thing that God would have you do to the thing that, you know, like I say, it's not an evil thing, and so it's just something that's kind of, this seems like the right thing for me to do. You catch the drift? And they get brighter and brighter and brighter, don't they? And then a lot of times we end up making that choice. Now, the funny thing is, the old saying is hindsight is twenty twenty, and that is incredibly true, isn't it? I mean, when you look at these decisions in the light of time, in other words, years later, and you look back at that decision, the thing that's got so bright in our eyes to make us choose the thing that we wanted, it dulls, it, you know, it goes away. Whatever we wanted, we find out, wow, you know, be careful what you pray for. I got it, and it didn't work out like I wanted, and so on. So that thing decreases, and the funny thing is, the thing that was right becomes more and more clear as to why it was right. And so you, you get this thing going on where it's kind of like you really do get a, a weight in your soul about what was right and what wasn't right and why, and some understanding of it if you don't have all of the dimensions of it. Isn't, doesn't that happen? So I want to say something. When I say how many of, you, of us in here would like to do the right thing consistently, I think what I'm really asking is this. How many of you would like... When you're faced with one of these big decisions, that the stuff that has to do with you doesn't even come into your head, right? It's just not even there. So that the stuff that's God is the only thing that is there, and it brines shite, or shines bright. <laughs> brines shite? Oh, brines shite. Wow, that's really bad. No. Okay. <laughs> if this is going overseas, very interesting right now. I love you. Sorry. Okay. But the, but the shines bright, and the point is the stuff of God shines bright, right? How many of you would like to get to that place where you don't even think about the things of the world, and you just, it's all about God? How many of you like to get to that place? Would you like to be there? Right? Pretty much everybody? Sorry, I can't help you with that. Because <laughs> we're fallen, right? And there is this thing of flesh that we just get to deal with until after 
were dead, right? And at that point in time, then it really is all about God, and we really do get it, and we really do know as we're known, and we really do get the truth, and so on. Until then, there's going to be this battle going on, this choice. The one thing that I can tell you is, well, I can't get you to, well, you'll never think about anything that has to do with you. I can, and we're going to, talk about a way of getting to where that thing that you want never really lights up the way that it does normally. It lights up less and less, let's say it that way. And the thing that is the right thing shines brighter and brighter. We can move to wherever more the right thing is clearly the right thing. In other words, take that 20-20 hindsight and move it forward to where when we're looking at the decision, we actually see it in that light and get it right. Right? Now, does that sound like a good thing to do? If I can't get you all the way, I'll get you a lot of the way. How's that? All right? So the person who's praying for us today is Josh Benjamin. This is awesome. Uh, recently married, all kinds of things. I've known Josh for close to 15 years now. So this is a great young man. So would you just pray for the sermon? Lift up another church too, Josh. Let's pray. Father God, I just uh, thank you for gathering us here under this roof this morning, Lord. And I just pray that you would... Open our hearts to understand the word as Kurt unfolds it and as you want to speak it to us, Lord. And God, I just pray that during this season that you would help us to, to help those who cannot feel your love, who do not know your love, to be able to experience it and feel it in a palpable way. Lord, and I just want to lift up uh, Celebration Christian Community in West Seattle, Lord, and I just pray that Thank you would uh, continue to move in that church and cast your vision. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Josh, I, don't, I haven't forgotten that we're supposed to get together, so it's happening. It's his last premarital. <laughs> He's already been married for quite a while now, so I'm a little behind. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I want to welcome you to our study on Ruth, and I want to do it by actually clicking it. Okay, there you go. Our study on Ruth, and today and next week, it ends next week, we are shifting our focus from this amazing Ruth to Boaz. And by the way, we had a nice transition last week as we learned about Amazing Naomi. And if you did not hear last week's sermon, I don't know what I could do to encourage you to do it, but I'd pay you money to go listen to it because it was, Justine did it and it was that good, okay? So I want to I make sure that people hear it and get a hold of it, okay? So you heard the people clapping about it because they were saying, yes, watch that thing. It's just deep, okay? Really, I love the depth of the water there. So but having said that, here we are with Ruth, and we're going to Boaz now. And just to catch everybody up on what the story is, it goes like this. Naomi is married to a guy and has two sons. They have a little plot of land that, that helps them survive in good times, but this is famine now. And by the way, famine, it's not like it is today. Famines last a long time, typically. They can be short, but they last a long time. So what happens is famine, this plot of land is not supporting them anymore. They have to move. They go over to Moab, which is a foreigner place, and, and these Jews and Moabites don't get along together, okay? So they're living there. The father dies. The two sons get married. Then both the sons die. So now it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law from Moab. Now, when she's going back into the land because the famine has ended and she's coming back to her people, so to speak, She's saying, I'm destitute, don't come with me, it'll just be hardship on you, go back to your families, and one of the girls finally gets convinced to do so. They all three love each other very, very deeply. 
One of them, Ruth, does that amazing thing where she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. I'm not going to leave you ever. I'm going to come with you. So she comes with, and indeed, they come back into the land. They're poor. So Ruth begins to glean, which is to say, follow the harvesters and pick up what they drop. Now, this guy Boaz sees a new girl gleaning. Who is that? That's the one that came with Naomi. Oh, wow, that girl, she really did something big for Naomi. You know, she's come here to be poor to help this elderly woman. So bless her with more. Make sure that more grain falls and she gets more, right? Now, uh, after some time goes by, then Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, you know, there is this thing about family redeemer, in the Israelite culture. And just to explain that quickly, it goes like this. Okay, You have, if a brother is married to a woman, the brother dies, the inheritance goes with the male for the most part. There's some exceptions to that, but it goes to the male who can hold it and work it and protect it and so on. And the bottom line is, is that it, it goes to the male, and if he dies, then the next brother is supposed to marry the woman and bear children with her with the intent of those children being the inheritance of the original guy, the original brother, see? So he'll get that inheritance that was coming, and he'll follow that line and do all that kind of stuff. And so she, that doesn't just go to brothers. It can go to near relatives too. And so Naomi says, hey, go, go tuck yourself under his feet, under his blanket, and then he'll tell you what to do. And he says, you know what? I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to do this. But... Boaz is a guy who does right. This is a story about two people who do right all the time. And so he says there is a nearer redeemer. And so I've got to do this, and I've got to do this in a way that maybe that person can take it, okay? So that's where we're picking up the story right now. This is where Boaz is now talking to this nearer redeemer. So Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. By the way, it's not terribly important, but it's not really friend. The, the translation is so-and-so. It's a colloquialism like, oh, you know so-and-so. So it's kind of, it's not dismissive, but it's specifically not naming the person. Okay, there's a reason for it, not terribly important, but we'll get to it in a second. So Boaz called, and, and so they sat down, I want to talk to you, they sat down. Boaz called ten leaders from the town, asked them to sit as witnesses. Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab, she's selling the land that belonged to our relative El Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, I'll buy it. I'm good for it. I'll redeem it. Now understand why he said that. He wasn't acting as a redeemer. He was acting as an investor. What he's saying is, I have a certain amount of cash with me. That's enough to be able to purchase that land. I will give that cash, those assets that I own, I will give them to this other person, this other Naomi. Naomi will then give me back title to the land. So I've gotten something in trade for it. And I'm going to keep that land forevermore because she doesn't have any descendants. See? So he's going to give it to his kids and it'll be passed down in their generations. And there'll be a family who's slightly better off than they were before. So this is an investment. Okay? But there's a... More to the story, right? So then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. 
I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because that might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I can't do it. Now, there's commentators who say, well, he didn't want to do it because he was a Moabite and they hate each other and all this kind of stuff. No, the, the explanation is in the text. Okay? And the text says, I can't redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. Now, what does that mean? I'm sorry. I need you two, and I, uh, Dave, I won't do that to you right now, but Adam, you come up, okay? So you four got to come up here. Sorry, I should have warned you, and I forgot, okay? It'll only take a second, okay? I'm only going to embarrass you horribly. Okay, you two stand over here. You stand over here. Come on, Zach. You got to come up here, okay? We'll, we'll, make, we'll make you the near redeemer, Zach. You're over here, so you're Boaz, and you get to be Ruth, and you get to be Naomi, okay? So you're sitting right here. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, huh? You're getting typecast already. Okay. Now, so, so now here's what happens. See, in the original exchange, what this guy's thinking is going to happen is, you've got to stand right here. I'm going to give you the money. You're going to give me the land. I'm going to go away. You're going to go away. That's what the deal is, right? That's how it's presented in the first half. But then this family redeemer thing comes up. And, and I want to do this because I want you to understand the nature of the sacrifice that's being made here. Here's what's happening. He doesn't have a lot of money. You know, we're not talking wealthy, wealthy. The way that God divided up the land and the way that it works there, and this was still fairly early on in the process. The, the, the kind of land that these people have, they're not, you know, some people are super rich and some people are super poor and so on. God has given everybody some land. And so everybody is relatively, but he's saved some and he's got some money and so on. And what he's being asked to do now that Redeemer comes into play is this. Take of the money that he's been able to save of those assets, give them to Naomi, who will then go away with, with that money. Now, by the way, I want you to understand, this is not enough money for her to live off of for the rest of her life in some sort of comfort from interest and so on, okay? This is enough money that it's going to make things a little bit better, but she'll still be destitute as a rule of thumb, okay, just in, in her basic state. Now what's going to happen is, so she steps out of the picture. Now Ruth comes into the picture, and he's got to marry Ruth to have children. That's why he's marrying her. It's not just love and all that kind of stuff. It's to marry her to have children. The child that comes from her will inherit the land that this guy purchased. <laughs> so you understand? He's out. He doesn't get anything back from this. There's no... There's no value back here. This is somebody doing the right thing, even though it's costing him. See that? Now, understand the nature of the cost. It's not just that he's out the money that goes with the land that ends up with this child as the inheritance, not his, and not his family's. It's also the fact that given that he is, in fact, the biological father of the child, the likelihood is, is that child gets bonded into the family in a way that the inheritance with whatever children he already has now gets divided up with these kids too. So there's a further dissolution of the inheritance. See that? So this is getting pretty costly now all of a sudden. See that? Then you have the other problematic part, which is this guy's married and the other wife is not terribly keen on the whole thing. And, you know, she's got her kids and she wants to make sure that her kids are provided for and now these other kids are coming in. And we have stories all over the Bible about this whole, you know, kids from one mother and kids from another mother and how wonderfully they all get along together. <laughs> right? You see? So, I mean, just think about this. See, what's being said here is on every level... This is a sacrifice. So he says, I can't, and splits. 
And Boaz comes in <laughs> and says, I will. It's still costing him everything that it cost him. It's not said whether or not Boaz had kids or not. The assumption is he did. That would be the norm by far. Okay? And then that would be for all kinds of reasons. Marriages are arranged and, and all this kind of stuff. It's not, you know, the, the strong likelihood is he did have kids. And so every single cost, every single sacrifice that the other fellow gave away, Boaz is accepting. Do you see that? Okay, thank you guys. Okay? The reason why I want us to understand that is, is because if we don't understand the nature, the seriousness of the sacrifice that's taking place at this point in time, we don't understand the story. We don't understand what's really happening here. Okay? Now, I, I want to just track this through a little bit more with you. Okay? The, 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 okay, why does the story do that funny little thing where he sets him up to say yes first and then embarrasses him that he has to back out. Why does it do that? I think there's two reasons why it does that. The first one is something God wants to communicate to us. And it's what I just communicated to you. If it had just been, if it had just happened in a more natural manner without that little hiccup in there, we wouldn't have caught the speed bump in this story. We wouldn't have caught this moment of the nature of the sacrifice that was being made by Boaz. We now know it because of the speed bump. The other guy backing out and Boaz being willing to step up, it makes us go, wow. See what I mean? It makes us stop and it makes us appreciate the nature that there really is a sacrifice that Boaz is making. And I think that the Lord intended to put a highlight on that. Now, I do want to say, though, it's not just that. I do want to say that I think Boaz did something that was very wise in the way that he did it. You remember how we were talking at the very beginning? We said, the right decisions have a funny way of turning out well for the person that made the right decision. You don't know that at the time. You can't see over the horizon. You don't know that something good's coming. In this story, God is putting such an accent on that that he's saying this. Ruth did a magnificent sacrifice for Naomi. Boaz did an incredible sacrifice to take on the Redeemer portion, right? The end result of this was a guy named Obed, their child, who becomes the grandfather of King David. So the story, God is saying, these two people that made these sacrifices and did the right thing, couldn't see over the horizon, but they did the right thing? Wow, look what was coming over the horizon. How many of you would be willing to make the sacrifice if you knew that it was going to end in your great-grandson becoming king? All of a sudden, it doesn't seem like such a big sacrifice, does it? Why? Because there's something coming back to you. You see that? We have to remember something about this story. It's critical to remember. Last time I made the argument, last time I talked, a couple of weeks ago, I said, this is a love story that never says that Ruth and, and Boaz were in love. Never says it. And I made the argument about why we could assume that they, there was a love there, but I want to say, why did the Holy Spirit keep it out of the story? And I want to say it's for this reason right here. When you're in love, what would you do for the person that you're in love with? For heaven's sakes, we make sacrifices to the nth degree, right? We would give anything, right? But if it's not that, if there's no thought of return, 
Which, by the way, that's how the story presents it. Because right here at the very beginning, he does this, he does this thing and lets her pick up a whole bunch of extra grain. She drops to her knees, bows down. How does this happen that you should pick me out and treat me so kindly? Me, a foreigner. Read foreigner properly, right? Boaz answered her, I've heard all about you. Heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to live a bunch of, bunch of total strangers. He's acknowledging the, the race relation issue here, which makes it all the more incredible that he made the decision. But look at the reason it's given about the decision. It's not, I think you're hot. By the way, I didn't mean to look at you when I said that. <laughs> not that you're not, but okay. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I was looking at Jeff. Now that's not any better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. And you are hot. I'm just saying, okay? Julie, where are you? Help me. Okay. All right. So... <laughs> There's a shovel, and you just kind of dig and dig. Okay. When he, when he does the family redemption thing, watch this, girls. I will do for you whatever you say. She says, you know, you're the family redeemer. I'll do whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Isn't that the proposal that every young girl dreams of getting? I'm going to marry you because you have good character. That's not what every woman dreams of her husband saying to her, her husband-to-be. Yes, I do. I love that. But, but, but the, what every girl dreams of is, I want to marry you because I can't stand to go one more day without you. I couldn't stand to even think about a life without you. I love you. I, you are everything to me. I don't want to live life without you. I love you. I want you to be with me. That's the proposal. That's love. That's the thing where there's a give and a take. See, there's something coming back. The way this story is being told is specifically, and I think orchestratedly, by the Holy Spirit, making clear that that is, it's not to say there wasn't love in there, but the story isn't giving us that detail. And I think it's not giving us that detail because it would take away from the nature of the sacrifice, the nature of the rightness of the decision, whether or not they were in love. It doesn't matter. Maybe they weren't. Maybe he wasn't attracted to her. In a very real way, that makes the story better. Doesn't it? Our brains run to the love story. God has given it to us in a way that he's trying to redirect us from the, the, get, the give to get. He's trying to redirect us into the nature of the rightness of the decisions that were being made. See that? And the sacrificial aspect of them. See it? Now, to the point that Boaz does this wise thing I was telling you about. I said there's two reasons why. One of them is God wanted us to see that. And the other reason is, think about this guy who we just had up here. Adam, right? And, and what happens is, let's just say, you know how things right? You know, at the, time, at the time of this decision, Adam is going, I can't do this. It's going to ruin the inheritance. It's not good for me, everything else. So he steps out. But let's just say it happened in a more natural sort of, you know, easy way and everything else. And then all of a sudden, you know, the years went by and all of a sudden this wrong decision he had made, not doing the right thing, started to weigh on him. Let's also say that the benefit, that there was a blessing that was coming with having done the right thing. 
Don't you think that he would come back and say, hey, you know, when we had that moment where I took the, you know, you kind of cheated me there. You treated, you know, you, you kind of couched it in a way that I wouldn't want it because you brought up Ruth first and, oh, and you knew that that would be a problem for me. And Here's what's actually happened now. This guy can never come back and challenge or question the decision that was made. Why? Because what he did was incredibly embarrassing. Everybody knows that he said, yeah, I want the land. But I'm not willing to take on the responsibility. I'm not willing to make the sacrifice. You see it? See? I think, that, I think this, this seals it. <laughs> the way it happened, this is a done deal. Anybody ever comes back and they say, man, don't embarrass yourself coming back and trying to question that decision. We know what you did. <laughs> you know, man up. You made a mistake. Weighs heavily on you. So what? Get over it. You know what I mean? That's the way it is in life. I want to tell you, I have... I'm going to tell a couple stories I've told before, but there's a purpose and a reason why, and I'd ask you to hang in there if you've heard these before, but I want to tell, I want to tell you a story about a decision that I made, one of these kinds of decisions about, you know, there was a moment, I knew it was a moment, and about right and wrong, and I want to tell you about one that weighs on my heart to this day. It lays heavy in my soul. I, I think about it this way a little bit. You know, when you go out to purchase a house, if you bought it all for cash, Every month that you didn't have to make a rental or a mortgage payment is benefit to you. So by buying cash, it pays back to you all the time. But if you pay interest for it, there's nothing wrong with paying interest for it. It's just a metaphor I'm saying. But if you pay interest for it, it turns out that you'll pay about three times the amount of the cost of the house. See? Now, when you do that, what's being said, metaphorically, it's being said, when you make, it, when you make one decision, it pays back. And when you make the other decision, its cost becomes more and more clear over the 30 years that you're still paying this mortgage off, and you've now paid three times the amount of cash out of your pocket than you could have if you would have just paid cash. And we don't have the cash, and so I get it. But you see, that mortgage is a little bit of a way of just making these houses, we can buy something that we really can't afford. And, and that's in a real way, and I'm not saying you can't do mortgages. I just, do you, get the, do you get the metaphor that I'm trying to go after? There's one thing that weighs heavily on you, and in the light of the decision later on, the cost is much greater than you assumed it to be when you first were attracted to the thing that you wanted. Do you see it? So that's what I'm talking about here. Now what happened was I, 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 was, I inherited a lot of money, and I didn't do anything to earn it, and uh, just a blessing from God, and thank you, the Lord, thank you, Lord, for it. And then I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was as dramatic a change in my life as when I went from unsaved to saved, which I also did later in life. And that was a huge change in my life, but being empowered by the Spirit to do His ministry was also a radical change in my life. And let me say, next year, January, we're starting a series called Empowered. And it's a mashup between the book of Luke and 1 Corinthians. And the reason why is because Luke is Jesus doing things empowered by the Holy Spirit in a way that is to be modeled. And 1 Corinthians is a book about people doing things in the Holy Spirit in a way that we shouldn't follow. So we're mashing it up and we're going to show the proper exercise and moving in the fullness of the Spirit. So I just, it's a little ad. Thank you for that moment. Okay. But the bottom line is, okay, here I am, I get baptized in the Holy Spirit, I suddenly realize that I really do need to reorient my life from the me-ism that was in it. 
And, and I, I pray and I get this thing about starting a business or joining a business. And so I join this business and, and you know, I have all this money and they're poor. And, and I just start pouring money into it. And I start taking assets and selling them and so on. And then there comes a moment in time at which I have to make a really huge decision. And the huge decision is this. I'm going to take and sell the asset which is providing for my very, very comfortable life. Buying nice cars and a nice home and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I could have anything I wanted, and I had everything I wanted. And I took, and I knew I was going to sell that asset, and I was going to put it roughly into the business and do a couple other things. Now, I want to say, I did, in fact, sell that asset, and I want to say that decision right there, I never have regretted. Julie, on the other hand, has had many times when she was, you know, and, and, and that's not to throw Julie under the bus. It's to say something. It's not that everybody needs to sell everything that they have. It was the unique person that I was before the Lord that I needed to do something like this. Because there was just something in me that I just needed to express the full end for me. I do not recommend it to anybody. It has been incredibly painful. I do tell you if the Lord leads you to do it as he did me, you will be better off if you do it. And I do not regret that decision for one moment. In fact, it's one of those decisions in my life that I can look back on, and I do every time. I've never had a moment's regret about it. I've always felt like, thank you, God, that I had the strength to do the right thing. Right? Even though it led to my intense poverty. Okay? Because it didn't go well. But the bottom line is, before that asset sold, I had... I thought about what I was going to do with the money. And what I wanted to do, I wanted the lion's share to go into the business because I wanted, I didn't want this other asset back there that I could backstop me. I wanted everything in this business. And if it sang, it sang. If it sunk, it sunk. Okay? And that was what I was going to do. And I was going to, so I was going to put the lion's share in there. But there was one thing I thought, which is, it's not really, I've got a kid at this point in time, just one. And I really need to provide for my family. And I'm not really going to have an income for the business for a while. It's going to take a little while for that to happen. And so... Uh, I'll buy a house, and then we picked out a very, very nice house, a house that anybody in here would love to live in, no matter how nice your house is. It's a very nice house, and I was going to pay cash for it. And I would have had enough money from the sale of this to pay total cash for it, and then at least I wouldn't have had to worry about, you know, making my family homeless, okay? Which, essentially, I ended up doing, okay? So, and then, and this is the last, but it is not the least. It's one of the main reasons I'm telling you this. It is the main reason I'm telling you the story. In the, in, what I was really excited about doing was taking the 10% and making a tithe of it. Now, I, I want to make it clear, this was a lot of money. This was more money than what most people who have large gifts like this would ever give to the local church. And the reason why is because they look at the local church and they say, what are they going to do with it? And they won't really do the right thing and blah, 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 and everything else. And I need to maybe, maybe make a little foundation of it or I need to spread it out in other ways with other organizations and I need to do something different than just give it to the church. Now, I want to tell you, way before I was a pastor and I had any dog in the fight about this, I loved tithing. I've always loved tithing because I've always understood what God could do through it. This is not a tithe sermon, by the way. I just need you to understand where I'm coming from. And what I loved about tithing was is I understood something. The average church gets between 1.7 and 3% of the income of the church. They don't get the 10%. Church, no church tithes that I know of. And the point is, is people say, well, they spend it all on themselves. And they do. And here's why. Because they're getting somewhere between, you know, uh, 3% and 1.7%. They're getting much, much less than the total that God would have brought into the storehouse. And so that's pretty much just taking care of the administrative costs of it, the salaries. 
Okay, and most churches are struggling right at that level to where the salaries and income is there, and so do we. And, and what I knew was is that if everybody tithed, the church, some churches would use it for themselves, and they'd buy gold-plated faucets or something stupid, and that's a church you shouldn't go to. Okay, do not give your tithe to that church. Don't go to that church. What are you doing? See what I mean? But, but most churches would do this if people actually started tithing. They would start manifesting God in their community in a way that was remarkable. You know all these people that have all these stereotypes about the, the miserliness of Christians or the, the negativity of them or the narrow-mindedness of them and so on? You know how to beat that? If everybody would tithe and the church would be what it was supposed to be, the things that we were doing in the community would be so against that stereotype that nobody could ever make that stereotype and have it stick. They could be prejudiced if they wanted to, but the truth is most people would look at it and say, I don't know what church you're talking about, but that one down the street, you ought to see all the stuff they do. It's unbelievable. These guys pour out of their time and their resources and their people in a way that is remarkable. And I see a goodness in the world because they're here. See that? This is beneficial to us. Now, I always understood that that's what the tithe was really about. That's why God doesn't give us a choice. We always have a choice, of course. But what he's saying is, you do this in a certain way, and I'll do what I want to do with it, and then you'll see what the church is supposed to be. But we withhold from it, and so we end up something less than what the fullness is, and then we judge that. And we judge it even though we're the reason for it. So that's just the way it is. This isn't, again, it's not a tie sermon. I don't mean to make you feel bad or anything else. But that's how I looked at it, and I was so excited to be giving this very, very large gift to this church that I believed in, and I believed that they were going to do something remarkable with it, and I couldn't wait to give it. Now, we put the asset up for sale, and we put it under auction because we felt, we felt we'd get a higher price on it, and the fact is, in retrospect, we probably got as much money as we were ever going to get for that asset, even, and it was still a lot of money, but it was significantly less than what I thought it was going to be, about, not quite half, but close. And because of that, now understand, the first thing was, is I had to say, well, I'm committed to putting it all into the business, so what's going to go? The house. You know, I was going to buy a house, and, and I'm just not going to, I'm not going to have the money to do that, and I'm not going to take from the money that I wanted to put into the business, and th that it could use it to get to this next place. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to give up the house, and we're going to do this, okay? But here comes the tough part. You know, here's how we justify. See, here's how I justified not actually ending up giving my tithe that I wanted to give. I said, you know, I had this large asset that was kicking off substantial income to me, and I was tithing off of my income. All I've really done is I've taken this asset, and I've just moved it to a different place, and this business should now kick off an income, and I should tithe off the income. Doesn't that sound reasonable? Sounds about right, right? I mean, why would I have to tithe off of the sale of the asset if I was putting it into something, and I would tithe off of the proceeds of the income? And I justified it to myself that way. And I'm close to 40 years past that decision, and it still makes me want to cry every time I think about doing that. And it's not because of some stupid works mentality with God or anything else, and I love you, but if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, God loves you, and he knows what you did, and he forgives you, I know that he forgives me. I know. I get God's grace. I live in it. But I've got to tell you something. I do not let the weight of that bad decision, the one that I justified and did another way, I do not let the weight of that dissipate from my heart and the reason why is because it helps me make not make that kind of dumb decision again by owning it 
What happened was a few years later, I'm in L.A., and at this point in time, I am poor. I'm working at a car business, and there's nothing wrong with selling cars, but that was a very difficult thing for me based on where I'd come from and so on. It was very difficult for me emotionally. God knows how to push our buttons, and he was pushing a button. And this was an incredibly difficult thing for me, even though it's petty and stupid of me to think that that's not a noble or can be done in a noble way. It can be done in an evil way too. But the bottom line is there's plenty of people that sell cars that are very moral people, and I met some. Few, but I met some. <laughs> and I was one. But the bottom line was I was barely providing for my family, and we had been very poor, and, and everything else, we were living in a very difficult place. It was literally, I mean, when the riots happened, we were in the middle of those riots. There was gunshots on all sides of our house because that's the kind of neighborhood that we could afford to live in in L.A., and that's where we lived. So it was poor. And I met this guy named Stephen Bochco at that car company. And Stephen Bochco, for those of you some know the name, most don't, but Stephen Bochco at that moment in time was by far the biggest Hollywood producer of television shows that there was. And you could take the next three or four and add them up together and they didn't get as big as he was. Because this guy was running, I think at that point in time, I think he was running Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, and Doogie Howser, and I think there was a fourth show too. Now those are some of the highest rated shows that have ever been on television and they were all very critically acclaimed and these were big, big time things. And I met Stephen Bochco and as happens in LA if you're trying to be a screenwriter, you know, you, I gave him my script. Now I want to make it clear, I did not go to Hollywood to become a writer. I did not go to Hollywood to become rich. I went to Hollywood because what was in my heart was is that the culture was going to hell in a handbasket and that there needed to be somebody giving a voice into the middle of the culture. Not a church sermon, but rather a voice in the culture that people were hearing that was the better thing. And so the way that this pitch worked, it was just perfect the way the Lord orchestrated it. The way this pitch worked is, here's, here's what normally happens when you get a pitch. Stephen Bochco loved the script that I gave him and he said, you pick the show, I'll get you the setup. I'll get you the pitch. You know what I mean? This never happens. Never. And here I am, Bochco's saying, pick the show, I'll do the pitch. I love what you're doing. I'd, I'd love to see you, you know, let's see what you can do and, and just do a pitch. And I had, here's what normally happens at a pitch meeting. You go in with 10 ideas. You're talking to very smart people who have thought about just about everything you could ever think about could happen with their show. You pitch them three or four ideas, maybe, maybe you get to five or six and they're just done with you, and you're gone. And in a thousand pitch meetings, if, a, if an offer comes out of one of them, it's one in a thousand. Okay? That's really how bad the odds are. I had the pitch meeting from heaven. I walked in there, and I said probably 20 words, and here were the words. I said, you know how in TV right now everybody is doing divorce and saying how divorce is good? I want to do, I want to have Doogie, his friend was named Vinny, and he had a dad that was one of the characters in the show. I want to have Vinny's dad have an affair. And then I want to have Doogie work through this really devastating event in their marriage and work through them staying together and see the benefit that comes to Vinny as the child of somebody who the parents worked through a very difficult thing. That's all I said to him. These two writers took that idea and I may as well not have been in the room. They went, oh my God, we've never thought of doing divorce on the show. This is unbelievable. This is such a great idea. Let's, let's do this. And they literally started writing, we could do this, we could do this. They were writing an episode right there in front of me. Now, because of the way that this thing works in Hollywood, I need to make it clear what was going on for real, okay? 
and I'm inflating the dollars the way that they would have been inflated. I don't know what the scale is in Hollywood. The economics have changed greatly, so this may not be... But what I'm saying is if you took those dollars in that day and you brought them forward to today so that you really get the full impact of what was taking place at that moment, here's what was being done. Those people were writing an episode for which I would be paid about $100,000. Right there. They were writing the episode for which I would be paid. Nobody has ever had a pitch meeting like this in Hollywood, ever. Not only that, but because it was an idea about divorce that was going to have a story arc, you get a certain amount of money for every time that story arc is used in the story. So that would, in today's dollars, be worth about 20000 bucks, and it was a six- to eight-week story arc, which, in fact, they actually used. If you remember the show, you'll remember a time when Vinny's dad ended up getting divorced, and that was my idea. It was generated right there. And I would have gotten paid $20,000 for every time that that story arc was being laid out. Okay? Plus, remember, Stephen Bochco really liked me and really wanted to see if he could help my career. And so what he was doing, if I'd have walked in and had that kind of a pitch meeting and, and even got a story arc, not just an episode, but a story arc, I, the chances of me getting a job there were super high. And that would have been, in today's dollars, about $500,000. So I'm barely able to provide for my family, and I'm sitting here looking at starting to approach about a million dollars. And once you're in as a writer, you're in. Because particularly if you're in with a guy like Bochco, I mean, you're in, right? As you can imagine, this is going through my head. Now the problem is, what they're taking with this idea is what I've already said, which is they're not going to take the idea and have Doogie work them through how to stay together in very difficult times. They're going to talk about how come divorce is okay, how come it's good even. That's the direction that they're going with it. So I'm sitting there, again, like I wasn't even in the room, and I'm sitting there having all this time to ponder, and I'm going, they're taking my idea, and they're doing exactly the opposite with it of what I intended. So this is a moment for me. Trust me, the idea came through my mind. Just shut up. Let them write the episode. Let them do the story arc. Get the job. And now that you're on the inside, you can make the difference. But you remember a few years before that, I had this thing about a tithe that I had justified away and regretted it. The cost of it had come clear to me over time. And honestly, that was in my head. The spirit of that was in me. And I just went, how many people have gone to Hollywood and had to compromise and thought that they could work themselves out of their compromising? Truthfully, right? I was just going to be one more roadkill. And so I said, knowing full well what was going to happen, trust me, I knew exactly what was going to happen, and it happened exactly like I thought it was going to. And I said, do you guys mind if we would move on to the next pitch? And this dead silence right in the room, this wall just went bang. And these people looked at me, and the guy said, he said, in all my years, I have never seen anybody do what you just did. <laughs> and he was saying clearly to me, you're an idiot, and you will never get anywhere, and we will see to it. This was, this was colossally dumb of you. And I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. And Bosco tried to, he kept going, why don't they, they're using your story arc, why aren't they using you? You know what I mean? But these, they would tell him one thing, and then when they saw me, it was... I'm so thankful that I made that decision. 
Now it cost me. We lived incredibly poor for a number of more years. But the truth is it also led, in hindsight, to me standing here right now. I do think that the way God does things, I do think I would have ended up in the pulpit. I do. Because I think that was his calling on my life. But I think it would have taken me yet more years and there would have been several more really painful things that I had to hold in my heart until I finally got it right. And so, I'm so th I feel like I dodged a bullet. I don't feel bad that that happened. I'm rejoicing that that happened. <laughs> I'm so thankful that I actually did the right thing. <laughs> I was in the moment, and I did the right thing. That's cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's to be celebrated. You know what I mean? And it didn't matter if it ever came to the pulpit or anything good for me. That was the moment. That was what God wanted me to do. I am absolutely clean on it. And the longer I get away from it, the more clear that I am about it. And thank God I did the right thing. Because <laughs> then I get to celebrate that instead of tell you one more really painful story. <laughs> right? So I want to end with this thought. I'm going to show you a little video clip, and then I'm going to talk just a little bit after it. But here's, here's the question that we're going after right now. How do you get to the place to where you're more likely to make that decision? Because the truth is, these times are really high press. So just a real quick thing. I actually had this video that I was going to do before Newtown happened. Is it Newtown or Newton? Newtown? Okay. Before, this is Clackamas. Is that how you pronounce that one? Clackamas. Clackamas? Clackamas, okay. Well, anyway, this is that, okay? And I, I want to show you this, this little ABC interview here, okay? We know that cause God, God causes everything to work together for good. That's the point. Now, here's uh, a hero in that shopping mall shooting, and the woman he saved from the gunfire, Jocelyn Lay and Alan Fonseca. Join us now in an ABC News exclusive. Thank you both for being with us this morning. And Jocelyn, I know you were at the counter, and you were talking to Alan when you heard those gunshots. Tell me what happened next. Uh, we both just looked at each other and knew that this was a serious situation and it was a gunman and we both just dove down um, underneath the Lancome counter there for a little protection and um, the gunfire just kept going off and Alan turned to me and well first I was praying I just called out to the Lord to ask him to protect us and to protect those people that were out in the mall getting shot and then Alan is my hero because he knew what to do. He said that we needed to evacuate and he took me by the hand and he led me down through the counters and down the escalator and out to safety. And this is what is amazing to me. He's my hero because he then turned to me, now that I know you're safe, I'm gonna go back and help other people. I was very impressed with him, being a young man and having such courage. Yeah, Ellen, that is incredible. You were safe, you got Jocelyn to safety, and yet you still felt like your job wasn't finished. Tell me what you did next. I'm sorry, I couldn't catch that. Can you repeat that, please? Ellen, tell me what it was like when you went back upstairs. Why did you decide to go back and try to help others? You know, I've been asking that question to myself all night, and I really don't know the answer. All I know is that... I knew the exits to the doors and I felt that if I knew how to get out of the mall and out to safety then I should probably share that knowledge to everybody else. 
that didn't know, like the shoppers who don't come here usually and don't know all the exits. So I decided to go back up because I wanted to check to see if there was anybody in panic or didn't know where to go. So that's why I went back and I did it because I really wanted to save and help as many people as I could. What a remarkable. What a remarkable thing now. I think there's two things that I just want to really highlight right here at this moment. The first thing is, we all think that we know what we'll do when we get our face with this kind of situation. Some people have the personality that imagine such things, so we work through it in our imaginations. Other people don't do that with their imagination, but we still think that when we're faced with that decision, we think we know what we would do. I want to say something really clear, and anybody who's been faced with these decisions knows that this is true. You do not know what you're going to do at that time. You really don't. Now, this is a split-second decision, but whether you have a split-second to do it, as I did in the writer's room, or whether I have a month to th or a couple of months to think about it like I did the sell of the asset and whether or not to tithe, the, the fact is, is what you will do in the moment is really what you will do in the long haul or close to that. And the fact is, you just don't know what you're going to do. So I think we have to do something in ourselves. We have to get a hold of something in ourselves. You just don't know <laughs> if you're going to do the right thing or not. So there's something that you've got to do to help yourself out with it. And it comes in the second part that he said, and I think I'm probably stretching this a little bit, but I'm doing the analogy. What he said was, is I knew where the exits were. And I want to say something. You see, what God is doing is he's trying to show us where the exits are. He says, summing it all up, friends, I'll say, do best by filling, I'll say you'll do best if you'll fill your minds and meditate on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. If you do those things, if you fill yourself with those things, then you'll end up putting into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that. Do that. Fill yourself with it. You're more likely to do it. Then you do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Right? That's that, you know, that, the thing that comes, the grandson that turns out to be king. The, the getting to be in the pulpit because of a decision that was, you know, not because I earned it, but because it helped me get there quicker. The greatest regret I have of my life is not going into the pulpit when I first got saved. And that doesn't mean that's for everybody. That's just me because that was my calling. That I, that's where I should have been. And everything else was wasted time except that God used it because he causes all things to work together, right? But the bottom line is, is we have to fill ourselves with God stuff. Now, I'm, I'm adding just a quick section here about what happened in Newtown because I just have to. And I just want you to get a hold of this for a second. I want to say something. See, I go out on my walk every single morning. And when I say that, I mean Monday through Friday. I don't go out on Saturday because it's just my personality. That break helps me. And then Sunday I'm here, and that's a God moment. Okay? So six out of the seven days, it's, it's all about God from the minute that I get up. Okay? And Saturday is too. And the point is, is when I go out there, I'm filling my mind with the things of God. I want to say something. I don't think that that scripture means you can only listen to 105.3. You can only listen to Christian television. You can only watch Christian television. And you can't ever go to an R-rated movie. Or even, for that matter, even a movie that just isn't about God. I do not think that that's what that is saying. I want to say there's plenty of people that do exactly that. And they're screwed up too. Okay? The problem is not. Listen to me. 
The problem is not in the externals, ultimately. The problem is in us. I go out on that walk, and I was sick last week, and I, did, I got five days where I wasn't able to go out on my walk because I was sick. And I'm telling you, at the end of that five days, I felt discombobulated. Now, I want to say something. Everything I was thinking about was still about God. Everything was still oriented towards him. Everything was still about him. Everything in my life, everything that happens to me, I filter through God because I go out every morning and I tune myself into his station. And that's the eyes and the lens through which I see everything that I do just all the time. Everything. If I'm watching something, if I'm experiencing something, if I'm seeing whatever it is, I'm doing it through those eyes. And by not going out for five days, I went from here down to about here. Now, that's not very far, right? And I think a lot of people would say, wow, that would be really intimate for me. But for me, where I am, there was an intimacy that was um, lacking from what I was used to. And in that, I began to feel disconnected from true, from right. I want to say, when you have this Molotov cocktail of first-person shooter games which there's nothing wrong with first-person shooter games in one sense, and there's a horrible thing wrong with it in another sense. But bottom line, you know, does Jesus play first-person shooter? I don't know. Probably tough. Okay? But I'm not saying that that's the problem, and I want to make it clear. The problem is we have first-person shooter games that are connecting with incredibly broken brains. Most people that do first-person shooter games are never going to go out and try that out in real life. That's just not what happens. It takes a broken brain takes a deeply broken brain to do that. And then you couple that with access to weaponry, high-powered weaponry, and suddenly you get these cataclysmic problems. We had these problems before. They just weren't as big because they couldn't do as much damage. And so people want to say, well, we need to do gun control and all that. It, the, the studies are out, guys, on these things. If you look at them, gun control laws would not have made any difference in the vast majority of them. It's just not true. And first-person shooter is not the issue. I'm not saying there's not an issue there, and we have to be discerning. That's what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for being led by the Holy Spirit at every moment, and here's what I'm saying about those guys. Yeah, we have a Molotov cocktail that is coming to a particularly bad place, but you realize that right now you can go to Israel, and you can get on a bus, and on that bus will be two teenage girls in their school outfits carrying M16s. And they're not shooting up people. The problem is, is that we're getting disconnected and we're getting disconnected in a way that is frightening. If you do not work with young people, you do not understand something. You do not understand the degree to which God and everything about God and just anything about the way that God wants life to be is being eradicated from their lives wholesale. The, the things that these kids are being brought up with and indoctrinated with, they are not the things of God, and they are disconnecting them from the things that we would call moral. And I get that people in the world think, no, it's more moral that we should do this, and it's more moral that we should do that. But the problem is, it is not the way that God has defined it, and so they're getting increasingly disconnected from the one who made it and knows how it's supposed to actually work. And in that disconnect, we add one more ingredient to the Molotov cocktail. And then we get broken brains doing things and thinking that they should go out there in the real world and do this. And here's what I want to say. Yeah, people in that generation, very few of them are ever going to pick up a weapon and go kill multiple shots to make sure that little kids would die. 
That is not going to happen with most of the people that are playing first-person shooters and have access to guns in the whole nine yards. That's not going to happen. But I'll tell you what is happening. It's just a matter of degree. The fact of the matter is, is that they are disconnected from these things, from these things that, that bring community, that bring a life, that bring... We think that the world is a place that lives in a stasis if we would just leave it alone. It is not. It is a place of brokenness that even if everybody isn't broken, it pulls the whole thing down. And in order to counteract it, there has to be writers in Hollywood speaking to the culture. There has to be churches that are filled up with the tithe and going out into the community and making a difference. There has to be this entire wholesale change of, of a thing of life. Let, let, the, let the marketplace of ideas battle it out between the things of God and the things that are not God. Let that happen. That is not what's happening right now. What's happening is, is all the things of God are being erased and what's left is all the things of the world and it is producing what the world produces, which is these unfortunate examples that we all grieve about but lower than that in less in in ways more subtle and nuanced people are dying more and more and more and more and they're getting more and more disconnected from the things of God and there is a tragedy happening in our midst and because it's going slowly the lobster is getting cooked and doesn't even know it So we got to do right, and how do we do right? How did Jesus do right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit and led by him at every moment, and he discerned all things at every moment. He wasn't just listening to 105 in Christian's television. He was in the world making a difference in tax collectors and addicts and prostitutes and all kinds of places, being led by the Holy Spirit. He was out there sacrificing. He was out there doing the right thing filled with the things of God, the Holy Spirit, he was out there being his emissary, his direct manifestation. This is what we need. A full-on, full-orbed, filled-up Holy Spirit-led people in everything that we do. That's life. And it has changed the world more than once and it'll change the world again the things of the world pale the things of God grow brighter and brighter and brighter and people make decisions that they don't know what its end is but they sacrificially make that decision and it makes the difference so Lord in Jesus holy and precious name right now with everything that we've got in us we come before you as a people who want to do right who are choosing to do right, who are coming after you to teach us how to do right, how to be right, how to be those that are your emissaries, that are manifesting you to where we can say like Jesus did, you want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me. Look at what happens. Look at his body in the world. Holy and precious name, God, bring us into this place where the things of the world pale even in the moment of their greatest temptation and the things of God grow brighter and brighter and brighter. You have come into the world to show us how to live and it is by being led by your spirit. Lead us by your spirit now. More, more fully, more richly, more gloriously more we reach down in front of us and we take this cup